Sometimes I hate to break up conversations because I think those conversations are so wonderful, so life-giving, so important. Um, thank you, Blair, for your, for your prayer. Um, yes, I have been battling a bad throat all week. I did something this week, I think the second time ever in my life. I actually had to cancel a class. I, my throat was so bad I actually couldn't teach. Um, so I just have had a few very quiet days at home. So I think we'll get through this morning just fine, uh, but then I have to come back this evening as well. So if I'm really rude and I don't talk to you after service, it's not because I don't like you. I do like you very, very much. It's just that I'm trying to save this and not have a coughing fit when I go home uh, later on today. So that's what happened last time, but I think we'll get through okay. So thank you for your prayers. I, I appreciate that, Blair. Um, and Jessup, I'm looking forward to getting to know you as well. I have heard your name so many times. And so over the next 12 months, I'm going to put this out in front of everybody. We are going to get together. We're going to get to know you and um, get to know your ministry as well. And life in Asia is wonderful, isn't it? We spent nine years in China, so just across the, the, the sea right there, you know. It's a little different, but uh, it's all Asia, right? So um, speaking of Asia, we just got, Sue and I just got back from Taiwan. We were visiting our son who lives in Taiwan, teaches school there, and uh, so good to be back um, together as a family in, in Asia and enjoying that together. Maybe that's where I picked this thing up. I don't know. Who knows? I don't try and track those things down. So anyway, just good to be Good to be back here. Can you believe we are still in the Gospel of Mark? It's been over a year now, folks. <laughs> yeah, a year ago, I started as interim pastor here while Stu and Braun were gone, and um, yeah, we're still at it. Here we go. So do you remember, I was thinking earlier this morning, remember um, one of the things that I love to do is sometimes sing my prayers. And remember, I taught you a couple of prayers last year that I sometimes sing to myself as I am opening the word, as I'm just even sitting in, in my study at home. Uh, I love music. We love music. We often have music in our home. We often sing together. As Sue and I drive along in the car, we will sometimes sing together. And um, when the three of us were together as a family, we we uh, sometimes would sing together as a family or with our son. And um, so sometimes I love to sing my prayers. And, and I taught you one last year, and I don't know if you remember it, but it'll come back to you, I think, because remember, you got to use your hands. But it's very simple. As we open the Word of God, the Holy Spirit inspired the giving of the Word, and it is the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand and to receive the Word. So you can join me with this, and your hands will help you uh, to remember this prayer as we come to the Word of God. <laughs> Holy Spirit, come, cause my eyes to see, cause my ears to hear. Cause my mouth to speak, cause my hands to reach, and my heart to seek. Holy Spirit, come, 
once again. Holy Spirit, come, cause my eyes to see, cause my ears to hear, and my mouth to speak, cause my hands to reach, and my heart to seek. Holy Spirit, come to me. Father, that is our prayer. As we open your word, we dare not read these words simply with human eyes. Give us the eyes of your spirit. Give us an open heart to receive what you have for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we come to the end of the 10th chapter of Mark, so you will want to turn there. And as we come to this particular passage, we, we actually reach a significant milestone in the Gospel of Mark. It is a record of the final miracle in this Gospel. This is the last miracle of healing that we will see as we, as we look at this book. But, but we will observe that it comes actually in a very interesting place in, in the narrative. It actually comes at the conclusion of this series of accounts here in, in chapter 10 that, that answers one of our questions. Remember, every time I come to, to the Gospels, there are three questions that we have to ask. First of all, what is this passage teaching me about Jesus? What is Jesus teaching about the kingdom? And who is a true disciple? And it's interesting that this passage that we're looking at today, I think, really addresses that third question, who is a true disciple of Jesus? And the more I think about this passage, I don't think it's so much a, a story of healing, although a healing is a part of this. Really, as we, look, as we look at this, we see that it is a story of true discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple, a, a true follower of Jesus? And we will see that as, as, as the story unfolds, but look at the progression of of, of chapter 10, beginning at verse 13. Remember, Jesus teaches about coming into the kingdom as little children. He says, don't hinder them from coming to me. You have to come to, the, to, to, to me as a small child. We come into the kingdom as, as little children. Then beginning at verse 17, we have this, this conversation that Jesus has with the rich young ruler who who asks that very pointed question, how do I inherit eternal life? And, and some very important teachings about discipleship come out of this section as well. Then we have in verse 32, this brief section, Jesus talking about the ultimate cost of discipleship. 
and he talks about even giving up his own life and and how he is he is predicting to them he is revealing to them what is what is going to happen at this point very very soon in in his life and in his ministry and then in beginning in in verse 35 this this section about what it means to be a true disciple you come not as a master over people but as a servant to people we are we are we are not masters of people we are not here to exercise authority over people no we we are here to serve and to and to love and what does it mean to be great in god's kingdom well to be a slave of everybody and so here we have this story at the end of these accounts Isn't that interesting? What appears to be a story of healing after we have one discipleship story after another. And so the context has to help us understand the meaning of the passage, doesn't it? So it's not like it suddenly shifts into something utterly different. No, he's continuing. He's building a point. He's building a case here. And we come to this story of Jesus' encounter with a blind beggar. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. We, we sometimes think of this story as the, as the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And you may even have, if you have one of those Bibles that has little section headings, it will say something like blind Bartimaeus. But as I think about this and as I've reflected on this passage, I, I don't think of him so much as blind Bartimaeus. I think of him as blessed Bartimaeus. It seems to be just another healing account, but as we look deeper, we, we discover it's not so much about a healing as about what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. You see, we see Jesus and his, and his disciples, and, and it really it's more than his disciples. We see there in verse 46, it's his disciples and a great crowd they're on their way to Jerusalem. This is, this is pilgrimage season. 
And they, like so many other people, are on their way to Jerusalem for Passover. And no doubt this would be one of the reasons why Bartimaeus is sitting by the side of the road. He is, he is sitting there and begging, hoping that people on pilgrimage would be especially generous at this time of the year. There are certain seasons when people's generosity seems to be much, much greater than at other times. Think about Christmas time around here. The same in the States. There are certain times when our, our attention is turned toward those who are less fortunate. And this is one of those times of the year as they are on pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem for, for, for Passover that people would be particularly generous. And so here he is sitting by the side of the road begging and hoping to take advantage of people's generosity. And Jesus and his disciples pass through Jericho. At this point in Jesus' life, he is walking literally to the cross. We've kind of taken things a little bit out of order, just celebrated Easter last week, but here we pick up the story in the unfolding gospel here, and here we are moving toward Jerusalem, toward the final week of Jesus' life. And from Jericho, he would begin his, his final ascent to Jerusalem. You know, it's only about 20 miles or so from Jericho to Jerusalem, but that 20 miles is straight uphill. Jerusalem is one of the lowest cities on the face of the earth, well below sea level, just to the north of the, of the, sea of Gal- or of, of, uh, the Dead Sea. And so it is, it is below sea level, and all those passages that in the Psalms that talk about going up to Jerusalem, you literally go up to Jerusalem because it is sitting at the top of a hill. It is about, a pro, I think it's around 2,000 meters going, or 2,000 feet, not 2,000 meters. That's really high. Uh, about 2,000 feet. So you're going from below sea level to over 2,000 feet in elevation in 20 miles. It's pretty much straight uphill. So they are, they are on this ascent to Jerusalem. And as they are leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus discerns that Jesus is passing by. And ironically, though he is without sight, he sees Jesus with a clarity that others do not. He, he sees him for who he truly is. But I want you to notice something unusual in this account that we have not seen before in the Gospel of Mark. This blind beggar has a name. That's the first time in the Gospel of Mark in a healing miracle where the person is actually named. He has a name. Not only does he have a name, he has a family heritage. He is the son of Timaeus. And what we see here in giving him a name, Mark dignifies him as a person, a real person who has a real family, a real ancestry, a real heritage. He belongs to someone. He is somebody's son. He 
in the eyes of society, he is another one of those expendable people who lives on the margins of society. He's just another beggar by the side of the road. But in God's eyes, he has every dignity afforded him to every other person who ever lived. He's not just a blind beggar by the side of the road. No, he is Bartimaeus. And here is his father. And if we know his father, we know his family. We know his lineage. We know his heritage. We can say this is who he is. He has an identity. Something I remember my wife's grandmother saying. Really, she was just a dear, beautiful person. She used to say when she would come across a person who had fallen on very, very difficult times, whether that person was homeless or imprisoned, a victim, a perpetrator of a crime, even listening to the evening news, the suspect, you know, we use those kinds of words, the suspect, and she would always say this, that person has a mother. It's not the suspect. That is a person who has a mother, a mother who cares deeply for that man. That person has a family. That person has an identity. That person is a very real person, someone who cares for them. And suddenly, even watching the evening news, I would realize it wasn't the suspect. It was a real person. They have a name. Have you ever talked with a homeless person? As you're walking down the street, actually, actually spent time talking with a, ho- a homeless person and asking their name, listen to their stories. I admit it can, be, it can be a bit confronting at times, listening to somebody who lives on the margins of society like that. But you know what? That's Bartimaeus. That is this blind man. Oh, the people in Jericho, oh, that's the blind man. He begs over there. No, that's Bartimaeus. He has a father. He has a family. He, he has a name, a story. And you know what? That is exactly how God sees each one of us. I feel like just a part of the crowd. I feel like just a part of the, the mass of humanity. No, you know what? That's, that's my son, Tom. That's my son, Blair, Rachel. I know you by name and your family and your story and your heritage. As we look at this story, I want to look at three phrases that I think that really speak to us in our own journey, either with Jesus or our journey resisting him. Because that's an option as well. We can either walk with Jesus and follow him on the way, or we can resist him along the way as well. The first, this line spoken by Bartimaeus, he says, verse 47, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. It's interesting that that Mark does identify Bartimaeus by giving him a name. But you know, it's interesting that Bartimaeus does the same for Jesus. He, He calls him not only by his name, but he calls him by his messianic title. Others may not recognize fully who Jesus is, 
But this blind man sees him very, very clearly. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and and this blind man announces to all the people that he recognizes him as the long-awaited Messiah. He, He is the son of David. Here is the man who is the fulfillment of every hope, every desire, every need that we have ever had, that we have looked for for generations. Here is the man who will bring us ultimate healing and ultimate wholeness. And he recognizes Jesus fully for who he is. And out of that comes one simple request. He says, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. It is this cry for mercy, and in his cry for mercy, Bartimaeus declares fully that that he is aware of his own true condition. Not only the blindness of his eyes, but the the condition of his heart. He he claims nothing. He, He does nothing to promote himself or to justify himself. Honey, may I have this cup of water down here? I'll just... Thank you, Blair. I'm going to try and avoid that place where all of you start clearing your throat. You know how that is? The speaker gets something in his throat, and everybody in the room goes, have mercy on me. I've been saying that all week long, have mercy on me. But he does not do anything to try and justify himself. He simply begs for mercy. Jesus, have mercy on me. And we have seen this again and again and again in Mark's gospel is that the kingdom of God is not filled with the self-reliant and the self-promoting and the, the smug righteousness of the Pharisees, but, but the desperate, the down and out, the the ones who recognize that I have no other hope in this world other than Jesus. Remember a few weeks ago as we were looking earlier in, in, in chapter 10, <clears throat> we looked at, we, we sang that song together again, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, I fly to you for dress, helpless, I look to you for grace. And isn't that where our journey with Jesus has to begin in this this full awareness of our absolute need as broken and wounded people? Isn't this what we learned earlier in Mark 10 is Jesus says you have to receive the kingdom as as a little child making no demands, we bring nothing other than our broken, wounded self. And remember the parable Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, the the Pharisee who is righteous in his own eyes, and he says, I thank you that I am not like the other people, all these sinners, all these other folks, and in his smugness and in his righteousness, he announces all the things that that he has done to earn this right position with God. He 
He finds fault in other people, but he sees himself as above reproach. But the tax collector, one of the most despised in society, he just simply recognizes his need and prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is how we come to life in Jesus. This is how we grow in our journey with Jesus. And to be honest, I, I always am a bit concerned about believers or people who want to believe or ask questions or whatever, who make demands of God, who make demands of other people. Well, God, if you do this, then I will believe, I'll follow you. If you meet my conditions, then I will have fellowship with you. If you do this, then I will respond. We see none of that in this man. Only the cry of a man who recognizes fully his need of Jesus, and he says, have mercy on me. Secondly, look at the crowd around Jesus. We look at Jesus and the crowd, and once again, we've seen this again and again through the Gospel of Mark, that our attention is drawn to the crowd. How are people responding to Jesus and even to Bartimaeus? Verse 48, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cries out all the more. He is absolutely persistent. Interesting, we've seen this again earlier in the, in the chapter, verse 13, people bringing their children to Jesus to bless them, and, and they rebuke them. They send them away, and Jesus, in that, in that passage, is indignant. Imagine a disciple, a follower of Jesus, determining who should come to Jesus and who shouldn't. We become gatekeepers to the Messiah, as it were. In verse 49, this is the phrase that really captures my attention. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. Two things that really capture my attention here in this this verse. First, Jesus stops, literally, in the Greek, he stood still. He's in a crowd of people, and one man is calling, and, and Jesus stops. He stands still. And it reminds me that Jesus doesn't just look out at people and see a mob, see a crowd of people. No, he sees individuals in the crowd. He has time for this one poor man. He allows the cries of one poor person whom society would rather ignore, who, would, who society would wish that he would just kind of stay away. No one has time for him, but Jesus does, and it stops him dead in his tracks. It, he stops, and he listens to him. Nobody wants to hear him. They silence him. But Jesus, Jesus says, no, I want to hear what he has to say. 
you may feel at times like a nameless, faceless, anonymous person in the midst of the crowd, wondering, do I matter? Do, does my life count for anything? Love that verse in Psalm 139. David says, how precious to me are your thoughts toward me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. You ever think about that? God's thoughts towards you are not judgment and criticism. God's, jo- God's thoughts towards you, David says, are precious. How vast is the sum of them. Remember those words of Isaiah, Isaiah 49. God says, can a woman forget her nursing child? You mothers out there, can you forget your own child, your nursing child? Can you forget your, your nursing child? I will not forget you. I will not forget you. You are engraved on the palms of my hands. Look at the palm of your hand. Imagine that is the hand of God and your name is written right there. You are, in today's vernacular, you are tattooed right there and I won't remove it. You're engraved in the palm of my hand. Jesus gives dignity to this man. He acknowledges him as a person of worth. He doesn't see the crowd. He sees Bartimaeus. And he doesn't just call to him. He says to the crowd, you call him. You bring him to me. You want to silence him? No. You bring him to me. And he forces the crowd to acknowledge the worth of this person. He says, whereas he says with the children earlier in the chapter, don't hinder them. Here he says, no, you bring them to me. Bring him to me. Don't just be a hindrance, be part of the solution, help him. And what I love here is how the crowd changes instantly. Suddenly their rebukes turn to words of encouragement. They say, hey, Jesus is calling you, take heart, get up. He wants you, he's calling you. And Jesus has heard you and they actually help him come to Jesus. The third phrase, and I have to admit, this is the most compelling of all the phrases that we see in this passage. The third phrase comes there in verse 51. As Jesus looks at Bartimaeus, he he comes to him. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? On the one hand, it seems so obvious, doesn't it? Jesus, are you paying attention? There's a blind man. He's a beggar. What do you want him to do for you? It seems obvious. He, 
He's blind and makes whatever living he can by begging, but, but Jesus dignifies the man by allowing him to make his request. It's a question that will, that will display the true motive, the true depth of his heart. What's interesting is this isn't the first time Jesus has asked this question. You know, there are different ways that you can ask a question. And as a teacher, I, I sometimes realize there are different ways a student can ask me a question. Seemingly the same question, but it really displays the depth of their motive, what really is going on in their heart. Student will come into my office, for example. I remember especially this would happen when I was teaching at Biola University. Student would come into my office and they would say, Dr. Kimber, what do I need to do on this next assignment to make sure that I get an A? Because if I don't get an A, I will lose my scholarship. That's one way of asking a question. And that's a pretty strong motive. I imagine it comes from the parents. You lose your scholarship, guess what? We can't afford to send you to college anymore. But how different is that question to this? Dr. Kimber, help me understand this concept because I don't think I'm quite getting it. And I really want to understand this teaching. I want to understand this point that you're making. It's a very different very different question. Both of them want to understand. They want to do well. One, for the purpose of not losing the scholarship. The other, I want to understand because I know this will change my life. I don't understand this. Help me to understand. Well, it's an interesting thing. We can ask the same question in different ways. And interestingly, Jesus asks this same question in chapter 10 verse 36, the passage just before this. He asked the question of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Look at verse 36. Actually begin at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him and they say to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's a pretty audacious request. And he says to them, Exactly the same question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And they asked that they would be given positions of power when the kingdom comes in its fullness. We want to sit on your left hand and your right hand. We want these, these positions of authority, these positions of might, prestigious positions in the coming kingdom. We want a God who will who will do our bidding for us, who will fulfill our selfish desires. Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're asking for. We want this political authority so that we can get our way. And Jesus says, oh, you don't know what you're asking for. We see such a different answer here with this, with this humble man, with, with Bartimaeus. Jesus asks him the same question, verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? 
And he responds first with a word, a name. It's translated in my version, rabbi, but actually the the original Greek is rabboni. Sounds very similar, but they have a bit different meaning. Rabbi means teacher, and it's a position of authority. It's a recognition of authority. But rabboni is such a stronger word. It It's not just teacher or rabbi. Literally, it means master. Master. It is a much more respected title than mere teacher. It it puts Bartimaeus in a position of submission to Jesus. You are the master. I am your servant. And I have only one request to make. Let me recover my sight. This This is his cry for mercy. Not only that he would be able to see, but do you realize in the recovery of his sight, it would absolutely transform his life in every way. This is an absolute transformation of who he is, his identity, his his ability to provide for himself, care for himself, all these things. Jesus asks the same question in these two scenes, but the answers could not be more different. But more importantly, the answer to that question reveals what is buried deep, deep in the hearts of these people. James and John ask for power and authority. They they obviously, obviously have an agenda, and they want God to do their bidding and to fulfill their desires. But Bartimaeus makes only one request. It is a personal plea. Heal me. Touch me. Restore me. Restore my sight. You see, that comes from the depths of a soul that recognizes its need of Jesus. There there is a blessedness that comes when we fully and completely recognize who we are as we stand in the presence of God Like Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, when he is given a vision of God's holiness, he falls to his knees and he declares, woe to me, because I am a man of unclean lips. Here is a a man who has no doubt experienced the, the abuse and the mistreatment of other people, but all he asks for from Jesus is mercy. Heal me, touch me, make me whole. He cries for mercy, and and Jesus grants his request. And this is where true discipleship, I think, really has its fruition here. Bartimaeus gets up, and we see that last phrase, he followed Jesus on the way. He follows Jesus on the way. Why is this a story of discipleship? Because it it begins with this, this recognition of this deep need in his soul. I am a broken person and only God can heal the, the brokenness in my life. And it ends with this beautiful picture of Jesus and Bartimaeus walking down the road together in fellowship 
healed, whole, restored, side by side on the way. I want you to reflect on that question. Because I don't think there's a, there's a greater question, especially out of this passage, that, that God could ask us. What do you want me to do for you? I think our temptation is to respond with far too superficial answers. And I think our answer to that question says so much about us, so much about what is buried in my heart. What do you want me to do for you? I think the answer needs to come out of that place. Where do you recognize I am broken? Where do you recognize I am hurting in this place? Where do you recognize this is where my soul is sick and needs healing? This is where I'm wounded and need to be restored. I think before we can really answer that question, what do you want me to do for you? We really need to sit like Bartimaeus and really understand not just the condition of my eyes. What's the condition of my heart? What does Jesus want to touch in you today? As you say, mercy, mercy. Let's pray. I want to encourage you to really reflect this day on those two things. Your place of brokenness and let that inform how you answer that question. What do you want me to do for you? Like James and John, do you selfishly just want power and authority? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. There is a deeper need. There is a deeper need. And that's the need Jesus wants to heal, touch. Father, give us the courage to truly sit under the loving yet piercing gaze of your Holy Spirit. To find those places of brokenness and woundedness that only you can heal. And help us in humility and not arrogance to cry out for mercy. God, be merciful to us.
nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked, broken, wounded, we come to you for grace. Help us. In Jesus' name.